Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Sunday, July the 16th. And welcome to our commentary. Welcome to our conversation with a Cuban-American friend, Carlos Rubio. As you know, one of the things that we've enjoyed uh, doing in these podcasts is interviewing Cuban-Americans, people like me, who came to the United States, uh, different ages, different times, and who have made a a life here in the United States, doing books or writing books or doing whatever whatever they do, business people, business uh, uh, people from the music business and so on. And we enjoy talking to them because we feel that it's a window to the amazing uh, Cuban immigration uh, here in the United States, an immigration that began in the 1960s, it grew into the 70s, and it still goes on. But I think the big bulk of it, of course, uh, was in the 60s and 70s. When many of us came here, in my case, with my parents, and we settled here, we grew up here, uh, we've made a life here in the United States, but obviously um, we still have strong ties uh, to our Cuban heritage. So let me introduce my friend Carlos Rubio, who I had the opportunity to meet through another friend, Nilda Cepero, who I had interviewed a few years ago. So Carlos, welcome to the video, and, and it's a great honor to have you. Well, thank you, and uh, really the honor uh, is mine. You're providing me with this opportunity to uh, talk about my life and my books, my work. Uh, As you know, the life of a writer is really a very solitary one. Spend time by yourself, hours and hours, just working on things. But it is a privilege. Yes, it is. uh, It is. uh an experience. I wrote one book, and I know that it can be very demanding. You've written many, so I'm sure that it's uh, it's quite a quite a demanding task. Uh, why don't we begin at the beginning, as uh, someone famous said? So let's begin at the beginning. What part of Cuba are you from, and and uh, how, where did you grow up in Cuba? Well, uh, at that time, Silvio. I don't know now, but at that time, Cuba had six provinces. And I am from the westernmost province, uh, Pinar del Rio. And the city, the capital city, is the same, has the same name, Pinar del Rio. That's where I was born, and that's where I grew up. That's where I went to school. And I, when I say I went to school, I did all my elementary work, and I did almost finish high school. Um, the, uh, the high school at that time was five years, and I did finish 
four years, and then I came to the United States. I had just turned 17, and it was a, a difficult decision, obviously, for everyone. But uh, with the help and the support of my parents, then I came and uh, landed in Miami. And I stayed for a while in Miami, a few months, and then through uh, Catholic Relief Services, I joined a Cuban house in Wilmington, Delaware. And when I say a Cuban house, what I mean to say is that there were 21 Cuban boys living in the house, all of us high school age, and the head of the house was a Catholic priest, and uh, we went to school during the day, and uh, we had chores on weekends, and we had a, a structured life, uh, which we needed, of course. And there was a time for you to sit down and study, and a time for you to get up in the morning, and everything was done with bells. You know, so many kids, you can't wake them up one at a time. So that, that priest uh, provided the structure that we needed at that time. Yeah. Now let, let me ask you a little bit about your time in Cuba. You you said you were born in 1944, so that means you became a teenager uh, in the 1950s, uh, late 50s, I guess. And what right. do you remember? Uh, you lived in Pinal del Rio. For those who who may not be familiar with Cuban geography, it's in the west. It's the western province, the one that points to the Gulf of Mexico, yes. and Pinar del Rio, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Pinar del Rio is known as the heart of the tobacco industry in Cuba, yes. and I know yes. that because yes. of my father. My father yes. had several clients who were in the tobacco business, so that's why I know that. And so just share with us a few memories of, of your life as a young man. You would have been... 15 or 16 by the time Castro came. So you had a lot of time to to remember Cuba and to grow up in Cuba. What were a couple of things that you remember as a young boy in Pinal del Rio? What were some of the memories that come back to you about that period of time? Well, I uh, really, Silvio, I remember everything. But uh, mostly uh, sharing time with uh, going to school, attending classes. We had a study group uh, where we would ask each other questions and review for exams and stuff like that. Uh, but if I had to pick the most memorable, the most indelible memories, I would have to choose the summers. My, uh, my family uh, had access to a house at a port, the uh, Puerto Esperanza, which is 52 kilometers north of the city of Pinal del Rio. And we would spend the summer there. And it was really no structure at all. We get up in the morning, have breakfast, and then go swimming, and then you could go. Uh, fishing, you could ride your bicycle, you could do all sorts of things. So it was really a very, um, very unique time. And 
just to show you how much that uh, town impacted me, I have uh, written a book. It's a, a short novel and a collection of short stories. And they all take place in the mythical town of Costa Blanca, which I fashion with my memories from Puerto Esperanza. So I would have to say that place really holds a very dear place in my heart. Yeah. Now, the you were also growing up, becoming a teenager, at the time of political upheaval in the 1950s. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know how much of this got to Pinar del Rio, but certainly uh, in the other parts of Cuba, Havana and so on, were obviously very, very electric, that is, all the politics. So what do you remember of, uh, you know, the late 50s and everything that was going on in Cuba. Uh, do you have any memories of that? Do you have any I, any memories of the political upheaval going on in the island, uh, Carlos? Uh, we're talking before Fidel Castro coming in, before 59. Yeah, that's right. So this would be, you were born in 44, so you were 14, yes. let's say right. 13, 14, 15. Um, about the time that this was starting to happen. So uh, what do you remember of that? I do remember that from time to time there were strikes at the high school. So the high school would be closed indefinitely. And I also remember that there was uh, on unrest from time to time a bomb would go off someplace in the province and you would see police cars and stuff like that. So it did, so the the political upheaval, the political situation did reach Pinar oh, yeah. del Rio, uh, even though, you know, for many of us, um, it, you know, I know I remember talking to my parents about Pinar del Rio, and they were, of course, my parents were, you know, in the central part of Cuba. But for them, Pinal del Rio was more isolated. At least that's what I remember hearing, isolated in the sense that I don't remember what is the distance between Havana and Pinal del Rio, how many, but it seems like on the map that it's a pretty long distance. It's 180 kilometers. Okay, so it's about... Uh, 120 miles. Okay, so it's closer than, than I, and at the time, uh, you were connected by La Carretera Central, right? That's right. How, how you were connected. And did yes. you make that trip many times? Well, I made the trip, I, I don't want to say many times, uh, or how many times is many times. We had family in Cuba. Yeah, I'm sorry, in Havana. And we would go, my younger brother and I would go and visit our aunts and uncles and spend a little time in Havana and then come back. Right. But and it, what, it was not something that we did like once a month or anything like right. that. No. And what do you remember of Havana? What, what were some of your memories of the big city, you know? Uh, what do you remember at the time? Well, that uh, it, obviously it was much bigger than Pinar del Rio. 
it had a lot more to offer as far as theaters and stores and restaurants and and everything. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, there used to be trolley cars in Havana. Uh, I think the, they did away with them in 1952 or 53. And I do remember I rode those trolley cars. So I remember those very well. Right. Yes, I mean, the, the one thing that I remember, and, you know, I... I'm about, I guess, uh, eight to ten years younger than you, but I do remember uh, in Havana, we lived in Havana the last few years of our life in Cuba, and I do remember the, the Havana had a very intensive and and very active public transportation. I mean, the buses were everywhere. Oh, yes. And uh, it was, uh, I mean, there were cars, of course, everywhere, too, but... But the buses were, I think Cuba had a very complex and well-structured public transportation system, not only the city of Havana, but the country as a whole. You could get around uh, easily and, and quite well uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the different buses. Uh, and the other day, I happened to see a picture of a bus, Santiago Havana, which was, <laughs> the, I guess, one of the lines that went uh, east-west. I don't know if Santiago Habana or those buses got to Pinal del Rio, but I'm sure you were other. there were other options, other, oh, yes. other lines. Yeah. There were also, um, for people who didn't want to take the bus to go from Pinal del Rio to Havana, there were private, uh, there were people who who made the trip and they would sell you a spot in the car. Right. Just like yes. a taxi. That's right. They were so like I the Cuban, it was sort of like the Cuban Uber. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a Cuban Uber 50 years before Uber. Uh, so yes. I, I did that. In fact, if, if I went to Havana and I did it without my family, that's what I would use rather than, um, than, taking a bus right it was faster and obviously a bit more expensive no but it was very convenient very and convenient. i i remember my mother uh, my mother being from Cerro de avila and at one point we lived in hatibonico where my father was working at the bank there and my mother often that's how she went to Cerro de avila by by uh taking one of these cars i guess they were sort of like taxis um and they, like you say, they were, they had space, uh, sort of like a more personal uh, way of traveling. So Castro comes in 1959. Your family decides to leave the country. You leave the country. I believe you left the country uh, under what we now call the program Pedro Pan. It was not called that back then. But the program right. Pedro Pan, you come to the United States and you find your way to West Virginia. Uh, so fill us in a little bit on, on, on that story. Well, um, when I came to the United States, Silvio, I didn't come with my family. I, I came by myself. And as I already mentioned, I uh, went to a house in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, through Catholic Relief Services. And in... Delaware, I finished uh, high school, 
class of 1963. And then once you finish high school in, in that house, you had to leave to make room for another boy, a younger boy, who would take your place. And by that time, of course, you were 18, and you were supposed to provide for yourself, find your own way. So since I didn't have any uh, family support, because I had no family, at least not here, then I found uh, a job. I, I worked uh, for the DuPont company for two years in Newark, Delaware. And all the time I was saving money and after two years of working for DuPont, then I applied to Concord College, which is now Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. And so I stopped working and then became a full-time student. But it took me, between high school and college, it took me two years because I had no money. So you graduated from, from uh, you went to uh, to school in West Virginia, or college in West Virginia, and also the University of Maryland. Uh, well, what did you major in? First, uh, my undergraduate was done at uh, Concord College. And of course, my interest has always been literature, so that was my field. And then I did the, uh, a master's degree at West Virginia University, which is obviously a different town. And then I did postgraduate work at the University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland. Right. And and that that's where you got, what degree did you get in Maryland? In Maryland, I started working on my doctorate. Okay. And I did finish all the coursework, but I did not complete a dissertation. That was okay. the only thing I all right. So then now, now of course, this is happening, and I think I think you got married also. I think at the end of what was it in '68? Yes. I uh, got married at the end of '68. And was this uh, a, a Cuban lady as well? Had she? Did she come to the United States like you did without your family also, or, or no, you she, met here? She came with her family. So how and, did you meet? Uh, I'm just curious. How did how did you meet? Uh, uh, another, I mean, how'd you meet a Cuban woman in West Virginia? They probably weren't that many. Just one. <laughs> Just one, the one you met, right? Okay. okay. We we met in uh, undergraduate school at uh, Concord College, which is, so we, uh, we met and then I started visiting her, her family, her house, and they didn't live obviously in that town, but her family would come to uh, see her and uh, sometimes uh, pick her up to go home for the weekend. And one time they invited me right. and I started visiting. So home. I would think her family, I mean, I, I can just imagine how surprising it must have been for both of you, you and your future wife, uh, to run into each other of all places in West Virginia. Yes. I, I mean, it's not it's not exactly it's not Miami, it's no. not Jersey City. No. It's not New York City. It's not even Chicago. No. Uh, where you already had populations of other Pedro Pans. Uh, it's. I mean, I'm sure that uh, your wife must have been. I can just imagine your wife uh, saying, or your future wife. 
saying to, to her parents, I want you to meet this young man who I met at school who also happens to be from Cuba. I mean, that, that must have been quite a, I don't know, must have been very interesting for her parents to, to, to find out that she was, she had met a, a fellow Cuban. Now, was she, what part of Cuba is your wife from? Well, she, she was born in Havana, but her oh, family okay. is from Manzanillo on the other end. In At Oriente. the other end, yeah. So, so, so you, you, you two are from the extremes of the island, right? Yes. I mean, you're from the, from the west, and she's, Manzanillo is in the province of Oriente, right? What yes. they used to call the right. province. I know at the very beginning you mentioned something very interesting that I identify with, and that is that when I was in Cuba, just like you, they had six provinces. And now they, I don't even know how many they have now, but for example, my, my father's hometown, Zahuala Grande, I think that's now a province. And my mother's hometown, Ciego de Avila, I believe that's also a province now. And when I, what I remember, Zahuala Grande was in the province of Las Villas, and Ciego de Avila was in the province of Camagüey. So right. they changed things around everything. The, uh, everything. So you begin writing. Let's get to your writing story because it's fascinating. You've written several books. You've had a lot of success. Uh, we have a link to your website so people can, can get further information about uh, your books. But you've written several books, and, and uh, you said you wrote one about Cuba, this uh, town in Pinal del Rio, where you spent a lot of a lot of your summers, but the other books that you've written, um, you seem to have a lot of interest. I mean, the books are about a lot of different things. Uh, uh, they're not even about Cuba, most of them. No. In fact, I, don't, I think it's only one about Cuba. So these different interests that you've had, but just take me a little bit through them. I know we don't have time to talk about all six books, but just kind of give us like a summary of the books and and what the topic is, because it's fascinating. When I look at your website, I see stuff about everything in your book. So just kind of walk us through it. Well, Silvio, I believe that there's more to any individual than their nationality and their background. We're all individuals, and we're all different. Uh, I've developed interests, so have you ones. So have my neighbors, and those interests are obviously reflected in my books. Um, and those interests may not necessarily have to do with Cuba. One of the one of the passions I have is American jazz, and I've always. I always wanted to be a musician, and I was studying music in Pinar del Rio. But all that came to a very abrupt end when Castro came in. But anyway, I wrote this novel uh, called Orpheus Blues. It is uh, a young man who uh, lives in Southern Virginia, and he wants to pursue a career in jazz. So to do that, he has to leave and find his way in New York City. And that's what the book is about. And it talks about jazz and jazz, about theory and about composition. And of course, how does he find his voice as a musician? So 
that is one of my books. And as you said, it has absolutely nothing to do with Cuba. Right. But, but, but if I may just jump in for a second, jazz, even though a lot of people don't associate jazz with Cuba, jazz does have a lot. There was a lot of interest. And uh, my father, for example, was a huge fan of jazz in Cuba. And uh, the, you know, the, the fact that both jazz and Cuban music have African roots, yes. uh, I, I think that that brings them together. So you're not the first Cuban that I've talked to who likes jazz. In fact, a lot of them do. I like jazz. And I know that uh, when I went to New Orleans one time and I walked around and I heard all this jazz, it, you know, it, there are differences, I suppose, with Cuban music, but the rhythms, uh, you know, the, as they like to say in Spanish, la música pegajosa, you know, it just sticks to you, right. uh, just like Cuban music does. So I, I can see, you know, the, even though it's not a direct connection, but I can see a connection for a Cuban young man to have an interest in jazz because there was a lot of interest in jazz in Cuba. You know, people who used to, some of the jazz greats used to go to Cuba and perform yes. in Cuba. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, and another thing, too, that I learned over the years, uh, again, related to jazz, you know, the connection between New Orleans and Havana was was a very big one. Very big. Uh, and there was a lot of commerce, a lot of, you know, movement between Havana and New Orleans. So that, of course, would explain some of the interest in, 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 in jazz. So that's one book that you wrote. What are, just briefly, a couple of the others? Okay, let's... Uh Flip the coin. That I would say Orpheus Blues is probably my most American book. If we uh, uh, look at another book called Orisha, which is one of the powers in the Santeria religion, and this book, of course, is written in Spanish, not in English, and it deals with the life of a Santeria priest and how he evolves into that particular way of life. And I, uh, it gave me an opportunity to explore that particular side of Cuban culture. Did you, by the way, Carlos, did you have any interest uh, in Santeria uh, in Cuba? Was Santeria, I guess the question really is, was Santeria popular in Pinar del Rio? I know that as a young boy in Cuba, I would hear things about Santeria, but in Pinar del Rio, was it, uh, was it active too? Yes, it was. Okay. And I saw that when I was very young, so in this particular book, Orisha, uh, through the life of this uh, priest, then I uh, experienced Explore that religion and how does one become uh, initiated into it and things like that. Nice. But uh, the um, the protagonist at the end has to leave Cuba, and as you know, in uh, Miami, there are many of these places called botanicas where they sell the the paraphernalia and things like that. So he ends up 
opening up a botanica in um, Miami. And at the very, very end of the book, this lady comes into uh, the store, an American, you know, just uh, light hair, light complexion, and she asked him a question. And then he answered in her language, obviously English, and the answer was, yes, we accept credit cards. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I guess uh, Santeria has come a long way, right? From, has a long uh, right. From, uh, to credit cards. I guess today we would say debit cards also. Yes. Or maybe even direct uh, direct payments. Uh, Carlos, uh, uh, the time is flying, and uh, we're going to have to do this one more time. But let me just ask you a, a quick question about the future. Uh, and by the way, I have a link uh, to the, your books on the show information. People can click on can link uh, click on that and and uh, and be able to get more information. But are you are you writing another book? Are you planning another book? Well, uh, as you know, I was working uh, on a book of short stories that uh, was released, I don't know, maybe a month ago, six weeks ago. And this is very different, Silvio. I don't want to write the same book. I don't want to write about the jazz musician. I don't want to write about the Santeria priest. I don't want to write about my memoirs. All that is done. So this is a collection of 10 short stories. And each one contains either an object or an event, which is unusual. And it's called The Successor. And this one has been released already, or you're working on it? Oh, no, it is, it is out. Okay, all right. In fact, uh, um, the running special is, uh, at least for the digital version, is uh, half price okay. until the end of July. And this is the link that you sent to me that we have on, on yeah, the show right, information. Yeah, six books are um, half price, but my personal website is just carlosrubio.com. Right. And if you go in there, then you could see we see didn't get to talk about quadrivium. Let me let so me ask you one last question as we wrap up. I didn't ask you before, I but I I have a note here. I wanted to ask you about your parents. Uh, your parents left Cuba eventually, right? No. No, they never did. Okay. Did you see your parents again after leaving Cuba? No. Okay. Did you stay in touch with them? In as much as I could, uh, my father died within a year after I came. Okay. And then I would write to my mother, but, you know, mail with Cuba was always right. spotty. That's right. I remember that, you know, it's funny that you bring up the mail with Cuba because um, I talk to people now from Venezuela, and they talk to people back home by WhatsApp. And I used to say to them, you know, when we used to contact our families, uh, we had to do it by regular mail, and God only knows if the letter got there. And getting a letter from Cuba was a big deal for us. Yes. I mean, that was like, you know, your mother would open the letter, 
and read the letter out loud at dinner time. It was a big deal. It was for big us. Deal. Yeah. Now, in my case, I left with both of my parents, my brother and my sister. So we left together. So I never had to deal with the separation. And your mother, uh, when did she pass away? My mother died in 1976. Okay, uh, so so you lost your father fairly quickly, I hear. Yes. And and then your mother. So okay, so you never really had the opportunity. Uh, and what did your father do in Cuba? My father was a lawyer. My mother was a college professor. Okay, all right, that's amazing. And 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 do you have any brothers and sisters? I had a younger brother, Silvio, but he, he died very young. He died at 52. Oh, wow. A massive heart attack. Mm. So I'm the only one left. Yeah, that's interesting. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, anyway, I, I, I just find these Cuban stories to be so great uh, because, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are, I guess there's a million, almost two million of us now, directly or indirectly Cubans. Uh, directly like you and me, uh, indirectly our kids, our sons and daughters, and in my case now I have three little ones, uh, grandchildren. And it's just amazing to me all these stories, and I just hope that with books like yours, uh, and I did a little story myself about our family called Cubanos in Wisconsin, I, I hope that we can pass this to our children so that they know our heritage um, we have an amazing heritage as Cubans in the United States. I continue to, to say that we're so privileged as far as an immigrant group. We right? are. And we have so much to offer and so much to, information to share uh, that it's always a delight for me to meet someone like you who, uh, who can and see the success that you've had with your books and everything. So you have three children, I believe, right? Yes, Three children uh, two, and any grandchildren? And one daughter. Okay, and then you said you had one grandson, right? Ah, uh, four grandchildren. Four. Okay, all right. Well, 17, you're... 18, 14, 4, and 1. All right, well, you beat me a little bit because <laughs> I have three grandsons. I have one who's three, one who's going to be two this in another couple of months, and I have a granddaughter who's one. And we learned last weekend that another one is coming. Uh, so we will have four yes. by the summer, uh, or by the, I guess by the summer of 24. So uh, the, the family, the Cuban family keeps reproducing, which is a good thing, which is a good thing for us to, to take our, our name forward. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, one thing, and I'll just say this last thing. One of the things that frustrated me more when I came to the United States and my family went to Wisconsin, which is pretty isolated, just like West Virginia was for you. But one of the things that used to frustrate the heck out of me is that I would talk to my friends up there. And, you know, I would ask them about their background. I would say, okay, well, where are your ancestors from? And they had an idea. In Wisconsin, there were many people from Poland, from Germany, uh, some from... Uh, Sweden, not not Sweden, but uh, the Scandinavian countries. There were many people. There were French people as well up there, and of course you had the African African Americans. And but one of the frustrating things for me is that very few of them could tell me a heck of a lot about their ancestors, like how they came to the United States. And I remember many of them would say, "Well, you know, they came in the boat 
you know, and whenever. But I don't know too much about them. So I made a commitment to myself, and I said, you know, that's never going to happen to me. When I have kids one day, they're going to know everything about our family and how we got here. And I want to make sure that they know the story of how we got here. Because I would get so frustrated. I remember I had a friend uh, up there with the last name Anderson. And Anderson, but, but in the Scandinavian version of Anderson. And I kept asking him, well, what, when did your ancestors come to the United States? And he couldn't really say a lot. He said, well, I've got an idea, but it kind of got lost along the way. And that for me was frustrating that people didn't know more about their background. So I made sure that our kids knew about our background and that they had a lot of chance to talk to my parents to learn the Cuban story too, Carlos. Well, that's uh, uh, our daughter asked me many years ago because I would mention something about Pinar del Rio or something I did, something I heard. And she would say, well, see, that's the sort of thing I need to know. And I said, you know, whatever you need to know, just ask me, what What do you want? And she said, well, I want to know everything. So she asked me to write a book of memoirs of my early, before I came to the United States. And I did that. It, I never thought I would do it. Uh, thought never crossed my mind. But I did that from my earliest recollections until the time I got on that plane. And um, I did that, obviously, in English, because I knew that one day my grandchildren, who were not born yet, would ask themselves, you know, who was my grandfather? You know, what were the circumstances that made him come to the uh, United States? Right. And then... All they have to do is just read the book. Everything right. is there. No, I, I think it's a great thing that you did, and, and I know many many Cubans uh, of our generation are doing that. The number of Cubans who've decided to put down their story in a book, particularly now that it's so easy to self-publish uh, yes. books. Uh, many, many Cubans have done that, and I think it's a wonderful thing, if for no other reason than to make sure their family knows how they got here. And the story, and in my case, it's not so much my story. I'm interested in my parents' story because their story is a lot more interesting than mine. Mine is interesting in the sense that it's my story, but I, I didn't go through what they went through. And I just want everybody, you know, my kids to always know the story of our family because I think that is so important. Carlos, I want to thank you so much for your time. As you can see, it thank flies. You. And uh, we'll have to do it again. Maybe we'll do a, 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 a an interview one time on one of your books, uh, and then we'll talk more about that. And uh, and I, again, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. No, thank and, you, uh, Sylvia, for giving me the opportunity. And uh, we will we will stay in touch as we do by phone or any other way that we can. But I want to thank you so much for for being a part of us uh, of our podcast today. It, it'll be up later this evening. And it's also going to be up on Babalu blog, uh, so more and more Cubans will have an opportunity to uh, to meet you and get acquainted with your book. So have a great evening, uh, uh, Carlos, and uh, we will stay in touch. Uh, we will stay in touch. Well, that was our friend uh, Carlos Rubio. I had the opportunity to meet him through my through a contact through Nilda Sepero, who's another lady that we've talked to, 
uh, from people that we've talked to a couple of times on, on the show. And again, you know, the idea here is to let you know and, and to make more Cubans aware of our story and how we got here. And there's so many interesting stories uh, that we all have. And uh, as I mentioned to Carlos, as I was wrapping up, that I'm really glad to see that more and more Cubans are writing their own stories. If you don't necessarily write a book, I understand that takes time and money, but if at least put it down in, in something so that your kids and your grandchildren know your story and how amazing your story was. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this. And we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye, everybody.